0: Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from LCP Delta. I'm John Slo.
1: And I'm Sandra Trutin. And together we are exploring how the energy transition is unfolding across Europe through conversations with guests from the leading edge of the transition.
0: Hello, and welcome to the episode. We're often talking with people and companies who are working directly with customers or end users or consumers. Today, we're looking at the other end of the spectrum, at transmission systems or electricity networks and the challenges they're facing, but we'll link that in, of course, to the role that customers or consumers can play in helping to solve those challenges. So let me introduce my two guests today. First, Duncan Burt, who's Chief Strategy Officer at Reactive Technologies. Hello, Duncan.
2: Hi, great to see you. Thanks for joining.
0: And Duncan, you also bring a long, come with a long career from National Grid, the TSO in Great Britain.
2: Yeah, that's right. For my pains, I was um, Director of Operations there and actually grew up in the, up in the system operator bit of National Grid over about 20 years. So I've seen the sort of full transition from a main fossil fuel-powered system right through to very high renewables.
0: Well, looking forward to hear more about that, that journey and what, it, what that's been like. And our second guest is John Ferris, expert at LCP Delta, where he's Head of Flexibility and Storage. Hello, John. Hello, John and Duncan. I'd like to start by looking back and then we'll after that we'll look forward. So Duncan, that 20-year career at National Grid as you described started off as mainly a fossil fuel power system. I think National yes. Grid by 2035 wants to be able to or will be operating a pretty much 100% renewable carbon-free electricity system. So I remember the days when we were talking about, oh, can the grid cope with twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent renewables? Tell us a bit <laughs> about that that journey from when you started at National Grid, and yeah, what what that journey has been like, and learning to cope with more and more renewable generation.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, back I started in uh, two thousand, and um, it, you know, the early years were very much the transition to full markets with NETA, uh, the new electricity trading arrangements. And um, I remember we wrote the, the sort of supporting submission for the UK government on the third energy package when Tony Blair was prime minister. And the question we had to answer was how much would it cost the UK to implement, uh, you know, sort of the, the target on renewables, which I think was 20 percent back then, John might remember. And our answer was very short. We had pages and pages to fill. And we just said, well, it will cost the UK slightly more than continental Europe because we're a smaller power system. And therefore, whatever continental Europe says, ours will be a bit more expensive uh, because we're a smaller grid. And that that held, (laughs) but we took quite a big target for the UK. And um, then we started being asked, you know, we were seeing the early growth in renewables, particularly in Scotland there. And even back then, connections were an issue uh, in terms of getting planning consent uh, and getting it in. And so... Uh, John, stop me any time, but um, I think we we first said 15 and then 20% renewables was manageable on the grid. And at the time, you know, I helped do that maths. We thought that was pretty radical. And and what Quite we were punchy. looking at, yeah, yeah we punching. We were pleased with that because the variability of the wind output was so much different to anything we'd seen before. Yeah, and none of the other power plants, the power grid wasn't built to take it. And we naively thought that that we wouldn't be able to adapt. Of course, what's happened since that would have been about two thousand and four, five, and since then, everyone's learnt a completely different way of operating power grids. And actually, our phrase that became our mantra over the sort of fifteen years from two thousand and four onwards was, "It's not harder; it's just different." Uh, and it's really difficult for for people and experts and organisations to get. Their heads around it, but it isn't harder. It is just a different way of running a grid, and you haven't got forty years of learnt history, so you have to start again. But but actually, it's it, you know it's as reliable. It's much more carbon efficient. It's actually much more energy efficient. So you just need to get on with it.
1: There's a famous story in the industry about that 20% target as to whether Tony Blair actually meant electricity when he he set the 20% (laughs) energy target. And given that the electricity sector is decarbonizing faster and earlier than the heating and transport sector, it did mean that the electricity sector really had to move beyond what it thought was achievable at the time much more quickly.
0: I guess we'll never uh, know the answer, John, will we, as to (laughs) whether...
2: I think we all thought we were signing up to 20% electricity at the time, and then it came back as 20% energy. So either we were misunderstanding, or it was a tremendous diplomatic sleight of hand. (laughs) 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 Duncan, you talked about all that
0: learnt history, and it's different. It's not harder, but it's different. But operating an electricity system, you don't want to take too many risks. You that the value of all that learned history of what, what you know, of what you understand, I imagine that's huge. So what was it like learning by doing to a degree in a system yeah. that you don't want to take those risks with?
2: Yeah, well, we adopted that phrase as well, the learn by doing, because we, we, we knew we were going to have to figure it out. It, it was both tremendously difficult and tremendously fun because you had to take a whole organization plus a whole industry plus government with you on some of this and sometimes you were being pushed and and sometimes you were trying to get ahead and and it covered everything so you you're right you you do run you know you run at, at incredibly low risk and you want to contain all those risks and part of that also means that you have a culture where an awful lot of your people spend every day of their career just trying to find problems with something, because every time they look at something, they're trying to understand what could go wrong, and that that's fine. But you've got you've got to try and redirect that when it comes to the scale of change that we've gone through over the last fifteen years, and that we'll continue to go through over the next fifteen years. Yeah, so you've got that sort of cultural inertia. But I I think the, you know, the UK worked pretty well in that. It had very good constructive tension through the industry panels where you would have developers coming in saying, look, you've got to get more wind on. And you'd have the, the government, you'd have different bits of uh, government, some of them going, well, you need to get the wind on, and other bits going, well, you can't compromise security of supply. And and actually, that created a lot of focus and a lot of emphasis. And And Offgem did some really good work in the early years on things. John will probably remember Project Discovery. We used to call it Disco at the time, which actually stepped back and tried to do a sort of year plan of what was going to be needed and that moved the regulations forward into all sorts of acronyms uh, which really started pushing things along so it was tremendous fun but yeah really really challenging internally not you can't challenge or change that culture you've got to take it and redirect it Mm. in ways that that really deliver because it's you know people often think that utilities are not very innovative or they're very stuck in their ways Uh, they're not They just have a job to do, and that job is keeping the lights on, running that as efficiently as possible, and trying to coordinate a whole series of interests and stakeholders across industry. So it's a really tough job. But in doing that, they can be incredibly innovative, and when they want to, they can move very quickly. But the incentives and the pressure and the need all need to align. I completely
1: disagree with that, John. <laughs> no, but no, I think um, for the, no, they have to be innovative. So I think a lot of people looking in from outside the industry, you'll, you, you'll see on, on, on the news pictures of the control room with the big screens and the banks of desks, and it looks like something out of NASA. But the actual amount of data, the visibility that they have over what's happening on the grid is somewhat limited. It's been what we've been able to monitor. It's been what's required, and that's worked for decades. But when you move down the grid, um, down the voltage levels, the understanding, the visibility of what's actually happening is somewhat limited. So you have to rely on both the engineering of the grid and rules of thumb and estimates and, and to some extent guesswork as to what's happening and both respond and preempt any issues happening. Uh, and I think it was quite surprising. It was for me coming into the industry from outside as to how little visibility there is over what was happening. And that, that was at the time. And increasingly, with more renewables coming onto the distribution grid, more consumer assets changing those assumptions, that's becoming even more of a challenge.
2: I mean that's definitely true in distribution, isn't it, John? I mean transmission and distribution have always been slightly different. So in, in transmission, we used to say that before the rise of Amazon and Google, the operation of the transmission network was the and the operation of the power grid was the largest non-military deployment of computing in the economy, and it, and it was vast. We used to you know had mainframes and computers running back in the 70s, and that grew with technology through the 80s and 90s. But as you say, the, the tremendous challenge distribution faces is, is there are just so many assets out there, so many things you could measure and monitor that it with, with the technology of the 80s and 90s was, was never really efficient to do it. But for everybody now, the absolute pressure is on really understanding, for, for, for network utilities, is really understanding what your grid is doing and deploying what is now very simple and relatively low-cost comms and data integration to put that together. And, you know, distribution is going through at the moment, probably what National Grid in the UK went through in the mid 2000s, which is that first really big change. You've got the renewables on, you're starting to get them on and you can see more coming. And you've you've now got to run ahead of that with data, with control, with planning standards, with future IT systems. It's, uh, I would say, tremendous fun. It's tremendously challenging. But at the same time, you've got a lot of moving parts that you, You need to try and figure out the future DSOs in the UK Need to try and figure out how to stack that up.
0: And all this is necessary to enable the volumes of renewable generation to connect and enable us to decarbonize the grid. As more renewables come online, Duncan, that needs more flexibility to manage the variability of renewables. Demand-side flexibility is a big topic and has been for for several years. So I'm interested in, uh, before we look forward, Another look back at reflections on how demand-side flexibility has been viewed by well, National Grid or, or TSOs in general, and the degree to which or what it takes for the for a TSO to get comfortable with demand-side flexibility, how much of a role it can play.
2: Yeah, well, I mean the great irony of this is that one of the reasons NITO was introduced back into in two thousand was to prompt big growth in demand-side flexibility. And, and all of the coding and the maths and the engineering was in there to accept quite large amounts of demand-side service into the balancing mechanism. But the economics or, or the environment re- really never played out in, in a way that the designers of that market hoped. Now, we used to have really significant demand-side participation in the UK through large industrial uh, customers, the, the big aluminium smelters when we had them in the UK, uh, some of the big steelworks as well, uh, and some of the other big chemical plants used to, we probably had, at our maximum, eight 900 megawatts of proper, you know, demand. Not not bat- not embedded batteries, not, not embedded generators, but proper demand playing in the market.
0: Those big factories turning down when you needed to turn down.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at, at different speeds, but a lot of that was in, in the sort of short-term flexibility, the frequency response, or the short-term operating reserve uh, type market. So... You know, really coming in in a few seconds to a few minutes, and then lasting fifteen minutes to an hour. What we're looking at now is, and what what it, what you'll see in the next evolution is much more interesting and important. Because, and and has we've been trying to crack it. We're trying to crack it at grid for a number of years, which is how do you integrate that? You know, the sort of mass dispatch of. Electric vehicles and heat pumps.
0: Uh, so you're moving from tens of factories to millions of heat pumps, EVs, batteries, and customers' homes.
2: Oh yeah, exactly. And you, you've got to remember the the scale is just phenomenal. You know, the the modelling we were doing on this, even in sort of 2012, 2014, on on the potential flexibility, particularly from EVs around the year, is absolutely vast. Most people only drive their car every now and then. We knew that uh, you know, a typical battery would, would last a typical driver probably a couple of weeks once EVs were being widely used just for the shopping run and the school run. And we also knew that people were very responsive to price because way back when, when we used to have uh, fuel duty increases every year, there would be a queue at the petrol station for two days before the fuel duty increase. And that for us was a good enough data point to say, People are prepared to think about this and they are prepared to have a small amount of upheaval to maximize you know their their price capture on or how cheap they can get their fuel for their car. So it was obvious that people would really start to to find ways to charge their car flexibly. And that was before anyone had even you know thought that an octopus or something as fabulous as that might exist, or those sort of smart control systems. So we knew it would happen. And, you know, the the flexibility you we were modeling from EVs would be sort of 40 times the amount of flexibility we were going to get from the traditional pumped hydro and would last you know days to a week in terms of its delivery. So we we were very excited about it and really saw it as a key enabler of you know that next stage of the transition, moving from, you know, your sort of 20% renewables where they're noise but manageable up to you know 60, 70, 80%. But we, we were pretty, not relaxed, but we, we knew we had options. You know, the, when when the capacity mechanism was designed, I thought very cleverly at the time, that really looked forward into the 2020s and said, OK, we, we've got these renewables coming on and they have certainty of funding of, of their revenue stream. The big challenge after that was all these CCGTs had no knowledge of what their load factors were going to be because it was going to be entirely driven by the growth in renewables. But we knew that that gas was going to provide a lot of flexibility. Most of the CCGTs in the UK were re-engineered to make them much more flexible so they could come on and off. And therefore, the capacity mechanism created a, a funding mechanism really to underpin that load factor in uncertainty in shorter timescales and worked really well. And our expectation was always, you know, this is back 2015, 16, 17, 18, but as the EVs came on with flexibility and then the heat pumps after the CCGTs would gradually uh, reduce in load factor, managed by the capacity mechanism support, and you'd get through that quite a smooth transition in flexibility.
1: I think we're starting to see from a from that consumer perspective that shift from flexibility being provided by the industrial sector to charge point operators becoming some of the largest retail consumers of electricity and then by extension both them and retailers with home charging are becoming large providers of flexibility from their customers assets.
2: Absolutely you are John and and with that you're getting a lot of batteries coming on whether that's warehouse delivery charging or charge point charging as you say or home charging let alone the batteries in the EVs so there's there is a huge amount of stored storage potential coming onto the system. And, you know, we need to make sure that we preserve in market design the price dynamics that drive that behavior. But, yeah, they, I, I think the future looks incredibly promising. You know, we've got the kind of infrastructure and assets, the kind of data integration and companies coming on that can deliver that. I, I just always think it's about business model and time now before, before we really see it take off.
0: Well, Duncan, you've moved role from a, a large organization like National Grid to well, not a startup, but maybe a scale-up, Reactive Technologies. Tell us a bit about what Reactive Technologies does, and also, I guess, personally, what made you move role from one to the other?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I had always wanted, I mean, I, I love National Grid. I, you know, it's a fascinating place to work, and I would recommend it to anyone, particularly the system operator. You really, you really do sit at the heart of things. But I, I knew it was time to move on. I'd done 20 years there, and... You know, I'd always wanted to sit on the other side of the table. I'd, I'd sat and watched, you know, many of the many of the companies grow into really significant businesses, and I'd always thought I'd, I'd love to try that. Thought that would be I was fun. Getting, <laughs> getting into my late forties, and I thought if I don't do it now, you know, I'm never going to do it. And I, you know, there were great people at, at National really, Grid so so uh, fantastic leadership team. I, I had no concerns about about moving on from that. And so, yeah, I spent more and more of my time, particularly ahead of COP26, working internationally with grids and could see that these challenges were the same the world over. So I spoke to a few organizations and uh, the one for me that had, had the best tech and the best fit was Reactive Technologies. And so I moved there Oh, just about 17, 18 months ago now. And what Reactive do is their core system actually had been bought by the system operator in the UK in about 2018, 2019, and then deployed uh, sometime at the back end of COVID. And that 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 was to measure the inertia of the system, of the power system. Now, we can get very technical very quickly, John, so I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> yeah, just for, for our listeners, I guess people can imagine what the inertia of the, the system might be, but just unpack that a little bit more without getting too technical.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like a traditional fossil fuel grid has all these massive bits of metal, these massive generators spinning around. And when you get when you get a sudden disturbance on the system, like a fault or a generator trip, all of that metal keeps spinning. And so you get a very stable, smooth ride. It's like riding in a very comfortable car. Whereas a renewables grid, it's just as reliable, but it, but it doesn't have these big bits of metal that are synchronously spinning with the grid. The the wind turbines and the solar, they in feed through an inverter and that inverter just follows the frequency to push that power into the grid. So instead of getting these big bits of metal that help you ride over ride over these bumps and these faults on the grid, you have nothing. So you your your frequency changes very, very quickly. Um, you know, in a matter of a few milliseconds rather than over maybe ten seconds.
0: And then how does reactive technologists help with that? They they measure that change yeah so
2: well so basically as you move to a renewables grid you know once you're getting uh, sort of 30 40 50% renewables then inertia becomes a critical cons- a security constraint for the grid just like megawatt flow just like voltage uh, just like demand and so like any security constraint if you don't manage it you're going to spend an awful lot of money or you're going to be outside of your security standards. You're going to take too much risk
0: or you're going to over-engineer your system. So, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
2: Yeah. You're going to go either way. So the first thing you do when you've got something like that is you measure it. Yeah. And then as you, as you measure it, you can understand it. And then you can build policy to optimize and manage it in a way where you know exactly as you say that you're not over-engineering, but that you're still secure. And that's that's exactly what it does. So we're deployed in the UK, measuring inertia now for well over a year, and that's allowing grid to optimise down to minimal levels of inertia. And in doing that, it avoids curtailing renewables. So if it wasn't doing that, it would have to run at higher levels of inertia and effectively pull back wind uh, when it got to, or pull back interconnectors when you get to get close to the inertia limit.
1: And we've also seen the impact of of having that visibility, having that understanding And being able to cope with less inertia than the system had before in the new products that have been introduced both in in, in the UK and we're starting to see around Europe where frequency response used to be a relatively slow service compared to what we're seeing now with the new dynamic suite responding sub-second or within seconds so there's much more of a need for very fast acting response to be able to counteract that fast drop in frequency that, that you can have in a low inertia system. And how do you measure inertia Duncan? It's,
0: it's I, mean, I guess it's a sort of task taking the lid off the, the magic box of tricks at Reactive <laughs> Technologies, but um yeah, well, me, you sensors on the grid or, you
2: know, what's Let me do by explaining how we used to. So we've always checked what inertia was and the way that we used to measure it historically was by looking at really large generation losses. So if you had a big instantaneous loss of generation, the frequency would be in free fall for maybe, as John said, for two or three, maybe even four seconds. And if you looked at the rate of fall, and you knew the demand on the grid, that would tell you the inertia. And you measure inertia in gigawatt seconds. It's basically how many seconds it takes for the frequency to fall. So we've always done that. And actually, you can't do that when the frequency is moving so quickly because you also need batteries and other fast plant coming on to catch it. So you don't have any free fall period and you only get a few samples a year. You know, you probably only, the grid we maybe had 15, 20 events like that a year, which is not enough. You want continuous measurement. So the way, what Reactive invented is really clever. They push a small signal into the grid. It's called small signal modulation. Uh, so in the UK, it, it actually pushes a 10 megawatt uh, signal into the grid, a pulse, like a sonar. And then there's about 50 sensors around the UK, very, very sensitive, and they pick up that signal. And by looking at the drop in, by looking at the freefall drop associated with that very f- small signal, because they're very sensitive, they can calculate the inertia in exactly the same way that 20 years ago we would have done with a big freefall generation loss over four seconds. Mm-hmm. These sensors, combined with some very clever signal processing, can do it on a tiny signal, continuously 24 hours a day
0: I feel like you're taking my taking me back to my days uh, studying physics at university and in, in a lab <laughs> I remembered signal processing but um, but you can do that whenever you want and you can get those accurate inertia measurements at your time of choice rather than waiting for an event to,
2: yeah uh, and that, that becomes really important because because not all of the well about 60, 70% of the inertia on the grid comes from those big generators. But actually 30 to 40% of it comes from, from demand, from pumps and fans and other motors that are rotating, or air compressors, for example. Yeah. And actually the, the contribution from demand obviously changes all the time. And most TSOs around the world either make a very, very conservative assumption for what that is. So in the UK, we used to assume 10%. Or, or they say, well, we don't know it, Therefore so it's zero. Assume <laughs> nothing it, which is the best thing to do when you don't know, isn't it, if you're a grid operator. And uh, you know, as your generation inertia shrinks, that demand component becomes really valuable because that can save an awful lot of money and it can allow you to run a lot more renewables on the grid.
0: You don't over engineer the system as we were talking about, yeah, exactly. Yeah. but to get that
2: right, obviously you've got to be you've got to build a data set, you've got to measure it continuously, yeah understand what the demand inertia is doing understand how it's changing. So in the UK, when we look at that, you know, unsurprisingly, demand inertia follows a typical industrial load pattern. So very high Monday to Thursday, some curious behaviour overnight related to water pumping, uh, and then behaviour at the weekend that really relates to industrial behaviour and pricing and a little bit to do with, you know, big industrial holidays in the summer and at Christmas and such like. So you can start to forecast it, and then you can build a plan and you can size your response curves, as John says, for very fast response accordingly. I mean, the reason I went there is just not because that's interesting in the UK, but, you know, inertia becomes a fundamental security constraint on every single grid in the world. So everybody needs to be doing this. Yeah. So from a, from a carbon saving point of view and a helping get, the you know the power systems around the world to net zero points use is a fabulously important piece of work and, and
0: uh doing that in a cost effective way so in a, exactly, a quicker way as exactly. possible exactly john just coming back to what you were saying about the the very fast response so we've got the more accurate inertia measurements people are going to understand the response that's needed that sub-second or response or second level response coming back to demand side flexibility To what degree can the demand side or other assets like big batteries provide that really fast response?
1: So At the moment, that's very challenging for the demand side to deliver cost effectively. Mm. To to be able to respond to a very fast drop in frequency, you need to be monitoring the frequency very close to the device that's providing the response. So if that's happening in the cloud, by the time you send the message over the internet to millions of EVs, then it's too late. Mm. So we're really seeing the, the big batteries are Monitoring frequency and responding very quickly on from the transmission grid, and that that's where that response is is being delivered from. I
0: because think we've it's, also it's worth their while that because they're big enough, they're worth, they can carry the cost of monitoring the frequency.
1: Uh, they can. Uh, yeah. But as Duncan mentioned early on, we've seen the cost of communication, of monitoring reduced over the last 20 years. As we get more EVs, more devices on the system, I think it's likely that that cost is going to continue to fall. We could see the cost of adding frequency monitoring to bidirectional chargers for EVs be a relatively small part of the cost whereas at the moment for sort of simple sort of v1g chargers it would add quite a significant proportion to the cost but in in the future you could certainly contemplate being able to provide very fast response from v2g capable ev chargers
0: so EV charging can provide responses to the grids today, but maybe struggle to, to do it this at certain speeds, but they can provide other valuable services.
1: At, at, at the moment, we're, we're hearing companies that are confident that they can deliver within 10 seconds, which means they can participate in the, the FCR markets. And even though they they believe they can respond quicker, being able to deliver that reliably to the grid operators, sub-second isn't something that they're typically willing to commit to yet.
0: And Duncan, from a grid operator point of view, there's a level of certainty that you want that a grid operator would want to see and be comfortable with.
2: Yeah, well. that's right. But I think I mean, John will hopefully agree with this that, you know, over time we've shown that we're, you know, grid operators, you know, around the world, with PJM, ERCOT, National Grid in the UK are are very happy working with highly distributed demand products. You just need to test it improve it just like we've been doing the last few winters so that it can really work to john's point you've got a you've got a lot of value opportunities if you're an ev uh, with flexibility it's just is the engineering worth it to get to that sort of speed or do you capture most of your value in, in some of the slower services but I'm anyway, that's what john's there to tell you isn't he i guess <laughs> <laughs> he could, he's working that out every day but no i think there's there is a real you know i, I think grid operators are absolutely assuming that really significant, the vast majority of the flexibility in the future is going to come from these demand-side sources. Mm-hmm. They're building their systems around it. They're building their engineering thinking around it. And, uh, you know, we need to make sure it happens.
0: Well, keeping on time, I think we're it's a perfect segue to bring up the talking new energy crystal ball and look into the future. So I'm going to set the dial this week to 2035. And quite a general question to each of you. Can you, from the year 2035, give us a brief summary of a TSO and how they're balancing the system? Maybe, Duncan, what they're measuring or how they're measuring inertia in in the year 2035. So, Duncan, would you like to go first with a view back to 2035 and then John?
2: Yeah, so for TSO in 2035, I think I'd say three things. One is I think there'll be an awful lot of innovation in terms of maximizing the capability of existing route kilometers of transmission system with things like rating enhancements and such like. There'll be a whole load of data acquisition on system visibility of which measurement of inertia will be core in every single developed market uh, and most of the emerging markets around the world. And and will be routine, you know, just like John said, people will talk about it in the same way they talk about frequency response. Uh, And then the other big bit is fascinating, will be the the scale of integration with, with DSO markets by then. And I think we will see really significant integration. And you might actually find the TSO is a bit of a passenger that is just scraping the top 15% off a much larger DSO market that is managing uh, local constraints uh, and local issues on the grid. So more of the,
0: more of the balancing gets done further down the network and the, the TSO sorts out what's
1: left.
2: Yeah, you know, the TSO will still do a lot, but I think the DSOs will be doing more. Yep. So they'll end up yep. with, with bigger markets overall.
1: Yep. But John yeah, I fairly agree with that and build on that, that TSOs have typically been focused at the national level at um, the, the the big generators and getting flexibility from the assets that they can that they can see that they have some influence or control over in response to the national demand I think we're going to see a much more layered approach which puts the TSO in the middle of what's happening at the local level where the dSOs are going to have to become much more involved in managing what's happening on their own networks, but we're also becoming much more interconnected and with renewables across vast areas, the opportunity for international flexibility or rather the, the need for international flexibility as well as national and as well as local and how that's coordinated is is going to be essential for a cost-effective energy transition. Very true.
0: Well, it sounds like You described at the beginning, Duncan, the change that TSOs have been on from when you started in 20 years ago to today, and we've got another decade or two of big change going forward in our electricity systems, so it's going to be an exciting place to be.
2: It is, it is. I can't recommend it enough. (laughs) Well, let's
0: leave it there today. Thanks very much, Duncan, for your time.
2: Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you, John. And John, great to see you too.
0: And John Ferris, thanks for joining. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. We hope that you learned something new today and got some new perspectives and insights on the electricity system and that maybe you could take them back to your day-to-day work in the energy transition and use them or apply them in some way. Thanks for listening and look forward to welcoming you back next week. Goodbye.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We are excited to bring you captivating conversations from the leading edge of Europe's energy transitions. If you've got suggestions for topics or guests for future episodes, please let us know.
0: And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do rate it and share it with colleagues. For show notes, transcripts and more, please visit lcpdelta.com.